0: But we're going to discover, and you probably read the story, that doesn't happen. But why doesn't it happen? How does God work uh, through some wisdom and a lot of grace to avoid that worst-case scenario from happening? So that's what we're going to see today in Acts 6. Uh, and an overriding principle. And the overriding principle is uh, the effective church cannot be a one-man or a one-woman team. It involves everybody being involved and contributing, just like a, a good sports team. All right, let's uh, pray for uh, teachability to God's Word. And as always, we want to pray for those who serve and protect us. And, and you know, we've, we prayed for the military very concertedly since 9-11, and pretty quickly well, you, we figured it out we better pray for our peace officers and our firefighters. And and now, in the last few months, it seems like police officers especially are, are targets, intentionally uh, targeted for all kinds of mayhem. And so uh, I'm glad we pray for those people regularly and we need to continue to do so uh, for sure. So um, Homer Cox, if you would lead us in prayer in that direction, would you? Thank you. Well, you know what? A few weeks ago Warica Lake was at 29% capacity which means it was 71% empty. If I did the math right. City of Duncan was under stage 5 water restrictions and we were told it would take 10 years or more for us to recover if we ever did. But in the providence of God today uh, Warica Lake is more than 100% full which I guess means more than 0% empty. Uh, Water restrictions have been or are about to be lifted uh, in Duncan, which means, among many other things, for the last three or four weeks we've had a lot of rain. And so that brings me to my weekly, and that's W-E-E-K, Jack, not W-E-A-K, my weekly attempt at humor in an effort to fully warm up our capacity for abstract thinking And we're going to call this top five signs we've had a lot of rain lately. Number five. Drivers who exceed the speed limit on Highway 81 are not being pulled over by the Duncan PD, but by the U.S. Coast Guard. (laughs) Yeah, shout out to Scott on that one. Number four. We're talking about signs we've had a lot of rain. Last week, Harold Kasperite was fined $500 for not having enough life jackets in his pickup truck. <laughs> Number three, people like Dale Corbin, who are outside all day in the oil field, have had to wear scuba gear to work. That's, that's a pain, man. Number two, this year's Comanche Nation Rain Dance Festival, you write the punchline, No. Was canceled due to street flooding, <laughs> which is essentially true. And the number one sign we've had a lot of rain lately is the McDonald's in front of Walmart had to replace its drive-through window with a swim-through window. <laughs> okay, we're going through the Book of Acts, and we come to a new chapter today. There are 28 chapters total, and so we're we want to use a memory device to kind of help us retain the essential content of each chapter as we move through the the book. And so we're suggesting this statement, Jesus is alive as head of His bride with all those letters standing for a key uh, event in each chapter can help us to do that. So let's review a little bit. J stands for chapter 1, and that would be Jesus ascends to heaven, right? The death of Christ, substitutionary atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world, three days later the literal bodily supernatural resurrection and then 40 days after that. So 40 days after the resurrection we have the ascension uh, of Christ and Acts 1 talks about that. Acts chapter 2 E, the establishment of the New Testament church. We're no longer in the Old Testament paradigm, we're in the New Testament paradigm. We're not waiting for a promised Savior, we're rejoicing in the provided Savior. Chapter 3, uh, the salvation of a lame beggar 40 years old, born as a paralytic, had been begging in front of the temple for decades. Everybody knows about him and suddenly he's healed. And that creates quite a stir. It's quite a nice way to confirm the audacious message of the gospel that Jesus died and rose again. Chapter 4 unleashing a persecution against the church. When you heal and audaciously what happens? The people in power don't like that because that gives you good publicity and they didn't want the apostles to have good publicity. So Peter and John were arrested and uh, held overnight and told not to tell anybody about this Jesus stuff anymore. Chapter 5, we go from external persecution, Carol, to internal corruption and we have uh, Ananias and Sapphira and that whole episode of serious uh, hypocrisy in the church that had to be dealt with very secure, uh, severely. So that's the first five chapters. Chapter 6, Jesus is uh, influence of devoted deacons. Uh, we're fortunate to have uh, two devoted deacons, uh, David uh, Demerson and Mike Palovic. Uh, this church had seven, which is the perfect number, right? Um, but uh, you're going to see how they're able to do their thing and deflect uh, potentially... Uh, horrific crisis from spinning out of control in the church because you got people upset and concerned and feelings hurt and people feel like they're being treated unfairly and that's not, not a good thing. So I stands for Influence of Devoted Deacons. Next week we'll see Stephen stoned to death. One of the seven deacons that's chosen to help deal with this issue of serving widows. Uh, first one on the list is Stephen, uh, a man full of faith and Holy Spirit. He ends up being stoned to death in the city of Jerusalem uh, because of his identification with Jesus Christ. So he'll be the first Christian martyr. And there have been millions and millions since. And, and uh, through the tribulation there'll be millions more. Now, that's the first uh, seven chapters. Now just as a brief introduction of chapters 8 through 12 as we're thinking about this memory device. Jesus is alive as head of his bride. Uh, in chapter 8 we're going to see Philip, who's also one of these seven deacons chosen uh, today in our passage and he's going to go abroad outside of Jerusalem into Samaria and Gaza with the gospel and he's going to interact with the Ethiopian eunuch in a very important situation Isaiah 53 Joe the Old Testament prophecy is used to explain the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch by Philip so abroad uh, with Philip and then we've got elf. Well, Life comes to Saul. almost forgot. That's chapter 9. Uh, Paul, whose name was Saul, comes to faith in chapter 9. He talks about it in chapter 2 and chapter 26, so you get three, three descriptions of what happened, but he has a very uh, dramatic and emotional conversion experience. Uh, Saul, as we're going to see next week, is standing by kind of monitoring and encouraging the stoning of Stephen. He's also watching everybody's outer garments so they're going to have enough freedom to really throw their rocks hard. So he's watching the stuff and encouraging the uh, stoning of Stephen and his job is to arrest and kill Christians. And on the road to Damascus to kill Christians, uh, Jesus reveals himself to Saul who changes his name to Paul and he ends up uh, making a pretty important contribution to the early phases of our faith. I is the impartation of salvation to Gentiles. They don't have to become Jews first and pre-qualify and then believe in the Jewish Messiah. Anyone who believes in Christ, Jew or Gentile, moral or immoral, uh, heterosexual, homosexual, Buddhist, Muslim or Bible Belt cultural Christian comes to faith in Christ, has eternal life. And then that has to be verified and then we're going to see this isn't the first Christian martyrdom, it's the first apostle to be martyred, the execution of James, uh, countered by the escape of Peter. I've often wondered how James' mother felt uh, after her son is executed, Peter's arrested with the intent by the bad guys to kill him in the same way, but God does a miracle for Peter, but not a miracle for James. But hey, are we saying that at death your spirit goes to be with your Savior That's a bigger miracle than getting a couple extra years for Peter, although God's purpose for Peter was different than his purpose for James. Let's read our passage this morning. Uh, We're going to see the influence of devoted deacons in the first seven verses of chapter 6, and I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Now at this time, what time? The very early, heady days of the early church. They're not perfect, Ananias and Sapphira, but everything is going great, and there have been very little uh, slowdowns in the overall progression of the faith, although they're facing external and increasingly severe persecution. Uh, now, at that time, while the disciples were increasing in number in Jerusalem, a complaint arose. Is it possible for Christians to complain? Yeah, it happens all the time. Uh, and that's just my complaints. I'm a, I'm, I'm a world-class complainer and whiner. I'm really, really good at that. I've got a lot of practice a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked. Ooh, overlooked? We're not going to help her. It sounds very malicious. I'm not sure that's what happened, but there's, that's their perception, so you've got to deal with that. We're being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve, the twelve who? Apostles, right, uh, who are functioning as an ad hoc elder board, Some of the congregation of the disciples and said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the Word of God to serve tables. Therefore, we're going to delegate this thing. It needs to happen. The church should do this, but we can't do everything for everybody every time. And we're not going to even try, but we're going to make sure it happens. So let's have you all select, and it's really nominate from among you, seven men of good reputation... So they're consistent not just at church services but in their regular jobs and their regular neighborhoods, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. Gotta deal with it, but we're not gonna deal with it. Somebody else has to do it. And that's the way the church works. You know what? The offensive tackle doesn't go out for passes. I mean, really it's illegal to go out for passes unless you've got a tackle eligible play. And then you've got to tell the referee before you snap the ball, because he might not even notice. Uh, but you never criticize tackles for not catching passes, but you do kind of have a problem with them. That they can't make a block. Am I right, Riley? You know, they got to make the block. Uh, the guys that can catch. This is why, uh, you, you notice how somebody on defense, I was never a football player. Uh, a couple of things kept me from playing football. A lack of desire, courage, size, speed, strength, uh, determination, things like that kept me. But I've watched a lot of football, and a lot of times you'll see a defensive back make a, an interception, and once they get that interception, they just weave. You've seen this many times, haven't you, Derek? They dra- weave through like 11 different people and, and make a lot of yards or make a touchdown, and people go, like, why, why isn't that guy a wide, wide receiver? Well, number one, the people trying to tackle them are all offensive personnel. They don't know how to tackle. That's number one, right? Uh, it's kind of a joke. Number two, uh, that guy doesn't catch real well, because if he caught decently at all in practice. They'd put him on offense. The fact is he drops it most of the time, but he just happened to catch it one time and he can do it. So the point is, on a team like the church, we all have different roles to play. It's not a one-man team. Not even the pastor. Not even Pastor Brad can do everything for everybody every time. I can't. I try, but you know, I do the best I can. Uh, But what we're going to do is delegate that so we can focus on what we're supposed to focus on. We're going to devote ourselves and really continue to devote themselves. They've been doing this. They're just not going to be diverted from their overriding uh, task. We will continue to devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. The statement that we're going to delegate this out, found approval with the congregation, sounded like a good solution, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parnaeus and Nicholas, a proselyte, a Gentile who became a Jew before he became a Jewish believer in Jesus from Antioch. And these were brought before the apostles and after praying they laid hands on them to publicly commend them to the task. And the bottom line is the church continues on. This is just a little bump in the road. Uh, the word of God kept on spreading. And the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and so much so, Christa, you're not going to believe this, a great many of the priests, the Levitical priests in the temple were becoming obedient to the faith. were believing Jesus was the Messiah. In the midst of the amazing birth and initial growth spurt of the New Testament church, in addition now to external persecution, we've got internal controversy and dissension. And the, the, the type of dissension here would have easily caused a split into two, into two groups, separate groups, because as we'll see, the, the different groups are, tend to be polarized anyway, okay? So we've got a problem, verse 1, a solution. Let's delegate this out and do it the right way, verses 2-4. through four. The implementation, selection of the seven and their recognition And then ongoing progress. So let's look at verse one, the problem again. Now, at this time, the early wonderful days of the first church in Jerusalem, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint. Now I realize the term complaint can be collective, but a lot of times it just takes one complaint uh, to raise lots of questions in some people's mind about anything, including in the church, arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews. What's that? Hellenistic Jews Uh, referred to Jewish folks who had been born and raised outside of Israel. Uh, In the aftermath of one, the Babylonian captivity several hundred years before and the rise of Greek culture and then uh, kind of the Roman Empire stabilizing the, the international situation all around the Mediterranean, a lot of Jews either didn't come back to Israel or came back to Israel from Babylon and then went elsewhere to make money, and to do other things. Uh, Some of these folks have come back. It's always kind of the ultimate, I think, urge of the Jewish people has been to to go back and live in Israel. To this day, when you go to Israel, they talk about uh, how many people every year come, uh, Jewish people come back to Israel. It's called to make Aliyah, which means to go up, to go up to Jerusalem. Uh, To make Aliyah is quite often many Jewish people's ultimate wish, And once you've been there and realized the dynamics biblically, you can see why. So we've got some Hellenistic Jews, Jews that had been born and reared outside of Israel who for whatever reasons have come back to Israel, have heard about Jesus, believed in Jesus, been part of the Jewish church, uh, or the the, the initial first generation church which was predominantly Jewish for obvious reasons in Jerusalem. Uh, One characteristic about these people, Andrew, is their first language wouldn't have been Hebrew or Aramaic, it would have been Greek. And the Bible they would have used would not have been the Hebrew Bible, it would have been the Septuagint. Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Okay? Uh, the second group are the native Hebrews. Guess what? If the Hellenistic Jews, Michelle, are, the, are, are Jewish folks who were born and raised outside of the land, who've come back to the land, guess what? The native Hebrews were people who were born in Israel and who these are messianic Jews, these are Jews who believed in Jesus. So you got those two different groups and guess what? The basic first language of the Hebrews would have been Hebrew slash Aramaic. They would have been able to read easily and would have gone to a synagogue that preached directly from the Hebrew Bible. Now what did the Hellenistic folks have? They had Greek. They had a Greek Bible, because their first language was Greek. And in fact, as archaeologists have Uh, checked out the first century Jerusalem. There were two different sets of synagogues in Jerusalem. There was the Hellenistic synagogues that taught the Bible from a translation, the Greek Septuagint. There were uh, Hebrew synagogues in Jerusalem in the first century uh, that preached directly from the Hebrew Bible. So guess what? These are two groups that didn't tend to mix. They kind of separated. It wasn't necessarily a hatred thing but just culturally and linguistically it made sense for them to kind of clump. Now some of these people have come to faith in Jesus and they've all been in the same church, right? Uh, But this controversy would have there's a fault line between those two groups, so any kind of issue like this that would seem to favor one over the other could easily result in a pretty quick split where you've got two sets of churches in the city of Jerusalem. We don't want that, we don't need that now, it'd be very bad. So you kind of have good news here. Uh, The church is helping the widows, but the problem is some of the widows feel wrong. There's a complaint on the part of the Hellenistic, the Jews that are the newcomers to the land in their generation, against the natives who were born there because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Now what's all that about? Well, this is the first food fight (laughs) in church history. uh, I have a confession to make now that the birches aren't here. I think I can say this. Uh, You know, I've got an obsession in my life. I have an issue that I just can't kick without extra help. I'm uh, an unrepentant fan of the Three Stooges. And there are like four or five different episodes of the Three Stooges where they get involved in a food fight, and Mo's trying to throw a pie at Hurley, and he misses curly and hits somebody else and that guy sees Mo and throws something else at him and you get the whole just a wonderful thing to watch. And, uh, and for some reason my wife, my wife didn't like me having the two boys when they were little watch stuff like that. I'm not sure why. <laughs> but uh, yeah, this is a food fight. It's a fight over food. And what's happening is in, when God set up the Old Testament economy for Israel, He said there needs to be special consideration for widows. And you've got, and it's interesting, when you analyze what Deuteronomy teaches is it establishes a form of welfare for some who were unable to provide for themselves, but it's also married with workfare. Uh, In the first passage there in Deuteronomy, uh, it talks about every third year there'd be a special tithe at the end of the year, and that money was used to provide for the Levites because they didn't have a portion of land to work Uh, widows and orphans. So there were some funds for their support that would be given to them uh, on a regular basis. But then in Deuteronomy 24, 1920, you've got this idea that at the major harvests and uh, during the year of growing, uh, the the, uh, farmers were not supposed to reap and process all the possible food. They were supposed to leave some on the edges so that widows and Levites and orphans to get off their blessed assurance and go actually do some work and kind of earn food, work fare. It was a hand up not just a hand out kind of thing. So that's the Old Testament uh, kind of teaching on that, that we have a responsibility as a community to those who can't help themselves. And the, and the synagogues did that and the early church was obviously doing that too. Now it's interesting in 1 Timothy 5, Peter, uh, Paul talks about this and he says, He talks about in detail who qualifies for this kind of help. Widows who actually need the help should get that help from the church. They've got to be 60 or over. Because he says if you're younger than that, you really ought to get remarried. That ought to be the long-term plan. Now, Watch this. Paul's writing to a context that has no Social Security program, has no life insurance program, Doesn't have the internet to help you find a a part time job or a new job. Um, Didn't have pension programs. And because Obamacare had not been passed, there was no health insurance. So you've got to put yourself in that situation. So, quite often, widows in that Roman Greco culture, first century and prior, were in a world of hurt, really unable to do everything they could for themselves. But even in that context, Paul, as in, he talks about how the church should help widows, and he talks about the age limits and different things like that, he says, "But watch this: if they've got children or grandchildren, let those children or grandchildren learn how to help uh, their parents. Uh, you know, it's not the church first. Let's not get between the family. Let's not uh, be a replacement for the family. It's saying your kids and your grandkids." And the older I get, the more I like that statement, the idea, if a widow has uh, children or grandchildren, they must first, that is the children, the grandchildren, rather than letting the church provide the meals, uh, they ought to be providing the meals for mom or dad. Uh, let them learn to practice piety and guard their own family and make some return to their parents. These are the people that wipe your diapers, that fed you for 10, 20 in some cases, 26 years in the new economy where nobody gets a job till they don't grow up till they're 37, you know, and stuff like that. Not everybody, present company accepted, of course. So, but I mean, put yourself in that context, okay? Uh, the Old Testament established welfare and work to help people like widows. The early church followed through with that. And in the process of doing this, uh, the early church uh, has a complaint come up. A complaint. Uh, Could be collective, but it only takes one. And what? Listen, I just put my cards on the table. I don't think anybody maliciously is trying to rip off the Hellenistic widows here. I don't think anybody's intentionally trying to do the wrong thing, the apostles or anybody else in the church. But at least one widow perceived she'd been wronged, or maybe her neighbor, her best friend perceived. How could that happen? I can think of a lot of ways. I mean, I've seen, you know, pastors end up being the in charge of the complaint department, whether we have anything to do with stuff or not. And in most of those cases, when somebody has a complaint, and especially when I have a complaint, I don't necessarily have all the relevant information, and I may uh, come to some faulty conclusions if I just operate with less than what I should know or could know about a situa- situation. So I mean, what could, how, how could something like this happen without any malice? because uh, I don't think personally, I, I could be wrong, you can check it out in heaven and ask the people, say yeah, uh, none of the apostles liked the Hellenistic Jews, you know, I can't imagine that, but uh, you know what uh, two guys are taking the food to the end of the street to a widow and uh, she's not there when they get there and they've got a bunch of other rations to pass out they say, so they say we'll come back later and they do other stuff and then they find out his ox has been gored and he has to go take care of that so she doesn't get her food that day. Or what really happens probably is you've got some probably small, a small portion of salted meat, some olive oil, and some uh, bread. And one lady gets her provision, and another lady down the street gets her provision, and the one notices her piece of salted meat is that much smaller than the other ones. She says, huh, I'm new here. They don't like me. I know what they're thinking. Every time they have one of those elders meetings, they're talking about me. They did this on purpose. So that, that kind of thing can happen. And the point is, that's why I put a specific category of widows may have been overlooked, meaning intentionally overlooked. I don't think it's intentional, but that's the perception, so you've got to deal with it. What are we going to do with this thing? Here comes the solution. Let's delegate it out. Let's make sure it's dealt with, You're not swept under the rug. But let's just make sure there's no favoritism. Everybody's getting what they need and what, they, uh, what we can do for them. So the 12 apostles summoned the congregation and said, Look, uh, this needs to happen, but we can't do it. We're maxed out. We're not going to be in charge of the uh, White House tennis courts as a president we had several decades ago, was in charge of that. The country's going down the tubes, but he was in charge of the, the tennis court schedule at the White House, not making it up. And it wasn't Bill Clinton, but uh, somebody else. Why do I say stuff like that? I mean, why even go there? But look it up. Google it. Not now. During the break. We're only going to take a 15-minute break this week, people, so just Google it fast. Uh, so the 12th of the congregation of the disciples said, look, we need to do this as a church, but we as the apostles have other tasks. So we're not going to let, neglect the ministry of the Word of God to actually physically do this. Therefore, we want you to nominate seven people who are fully qualified, that nobody's going to think is are, are showing favoritism uh, toward the Hebrews as opposed to the Hellenists. Uh, make sure they're walking in the Spirit, they're, they're wise, they're stable. We're going to put them in charge of the task. We're going to delegate this to the uh, proto-deacons. But we're going to continue to devote ourselves to uh, prayer and the ministry of the Word. So they delegate the task. And that's just the way you make things happen in any organization because nobody can do everything. Uh, I, I love this passage as a Bible teacher because you know, I've been very blessed uh, for 27 and a half years to have an elder board that realizes one of our core values is teaching of the Word expositionally, which takes a little time to prepare. Uh, Not counting the top seven list and the PowerPoint you have to do nowadays. You know? And you know what? People say, you're not serious. You have top five lists. Well, I've gone down from I must be half a fifty percent more serious than I was. I used to have top ten lists. I mean, just right there, but uh, I'm trying to do fifty minutes really, forty-five after the top ten list. I'm trying to do fifty minutes of Bible exposition to a generation addicted to spiritual Bible McNuggets, junk food, and I know it's not easy for for the young people for for. Uh, my good friend, I can't remember your name now, Riley, the football player, (laughs) to sit there and listen to an old guy talk about the Bible that long. So I'm willing to put some sugar on the oats. I'm willing to try to do little outlandish things. And I'm willing not to take myself real seriously, even though I take the ministry of the Word very seriously. I've devoted my whole life to this thing, man. I've actually had other things I could do, but I feel like this is what God's calling me to do, so I'm trying to do it the best I can. But you're not as good as Billy Graham. Yeah, you're right. Or Swindall, or a lot of people I could name. I, I'm just the best me I can be most weeks. But I will say this the ministry of the Word really is the ministry of prayerful study. And then you get to actually do it. That's why I say, Derek, you're not paying me to come to church on Sundays. I come, to, I come on Sundays and Wednesdays for free. It's everything else I got to do to get ready and do other things that uh, people need have done that that's legit for me to do, and I do the best I can. And some weeks I don't cover all the bases, but as Regis once said, I'm just one man. <laughs> he actually wrote a book, I'm Just One Man, but that wasn't as funny as I thought it'd be, but anyway. <laughs> so yeah, I get that, and I'm really uh, committed to the ministry of the Word even though we've kind of got a church full. Evangelicals are more I think uh, motivational speakers than Bible teachers for the most part. Uh, this is very biblical. As you know, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus are called the pastoral epistles, although they're good for any believer to read. They're especially addressed to pastors. First and 2 Timothy. Timothy's a pastor? Yeah. Ephesus Bible Fellowship. Is Ephesus a real place, Homer? You ever been there? Yeah. Uh, third largest city in the ancient world, and they had a church, a thriving church there. And Paul says, let's look at 1 Timothy 4 real quick. Uh, this this kind of tells you where I'm coming from. This is why I went to Dallas Seminary where most places you can get a two-year master's in divinity and everybody's happy, but Dallas Seminary has a four-year, uh, three years of Greek, two years of Hebrew. A lot of us took extra of both because uh, we wanted to really be able to look at the x-ray and tell you what the Bible means in context and what it means in your life. And so We're devoted to that, and, but you don't apply it perfectly. You're right. I don't. I'm working on it. But uh, I do the best I can. But he says to Pastor Timothy in Scripture, 1 Timothy 4.13, give attention to the public reading of Scripture. What else are we going to read? Reader's Digest? Comic books up here? People Magazine? To exhortation and teaching. That's logical, not chronological. Teaching is telling what it means. Exhortation is telling them to apply it. So ultimately you're teaching so you can exhort. Sometimes, Brad, you say stuff that I feel like applies directly to me. David, when that happens, you know what? That's the best thing you can say. Either David. I am trying to apply this to you and to me. I've been stepping on my toes all week, man. You know when I start working on next Sunday's message on the drive home? I do. I'm obsessive compulsive. What can I say? But I'm rich and famous after all this year, so it's working for me. Uh, Verse 15, "...take pains with these things." Be absorbed in them so your progress will be evident to all. Harold was so excited when we progressed the book of Revelation last time. He thought we were done studying the Bible because we finished the last book. But I said, no, we're going to go back to a new one next week. Uh, 2 Timothy 4, uh, Paul says to Pastor Timothy and all pastors, preach the word, not the People magazine. Uh, Be ready in season and out of season. That means when everybody's in town and when everybody's out of town. It means when it's raining when it's not raining. Uh, reprove, rebuke, exhort. That sounds like stepping on toes. So you've got to do that. I never do it with malice, but if I see an overlap, I'm going to try to relate it to the group, right? Uh, with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths, which is kind of where we are right now in the American culture. Uh, but you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, make sure the gospel's in there and fulfill your ministry. So, yeah, go back to Acts. Uh, The guys are saying, look, our primary task is prayerful study and preaching of the word and proclamation of the gospel, and that's what we're going to do. And we just can't do that and organize the food ministry. But the food ministry is important. It needs to be done as a church So let's delegate this thing out and make sure it's done well so nobody can complain. Talking about the ministry of the word uh, this is one of the best things I ever got. You get notes uh, from people in the pastorate. I keep all the good ones and and most of them are pretty good. Uh, But uh, I got a problem with my computer so I can't see anything that's black so I'm going to have to try to read this off of here. this is from somebody named Colin. I'm not sure who that was, but yeah, this is a few years ago. Colin wrote this uh, for Pastor Appreciation. Pastor Brad gives a ton of effort into teaching us about Christ. He does whatever he needs to do to make this a great, and he had scratched had something out there great church. Your brother in Christ, Colin. So, yeah, that was well said. I'm telling you. Yeah. Problem, solution, implementation. Start with the selection of the seven. And when you look at that list, the only two we really know anything about other than the list are the first two, Stephen and Philip. Uh, Stephen, as I say, will become a major character beginning in verse 8 of this chapter, but he's going to be stoned after preaching. Basically, the Old Testament was all about Jesus, and you need to believe it. And so they didn't like that, so they kill him. When you speak truth to power, you get in trouble, right? Uh, Philip, um, there's actually one of the 12 apostles that's named Philip, Nancy. And this is a different Philip. This is, he's usually called Philip the Evangelist, even though the, the Bible doesn't call him Philip the Evangelist. But just uh, to keep him straight, uh, Ron, we don't call this Philip... Uh, Philip the Apostle, or we don't confuse him with Philip the Apostle, so a lot of times he's called Philip the Evangelist, and he's the guy who in chapter 8 is going to take the gospel to Samaria, guys that talk to the Ethiopian, Ethiopian eunuch. Now notice the guy at the end of the list, Taylor and Charlie, they called him in World War II, right? Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. What does all that mean? Uh, oh, by the way, talking about Stephen, I forgot about the fact I we to talk about, full of the spirit. Uh, if I were to say, what grieves the Holy Spirit? Immorality. Yeah, I'm sure it does. Uh, uh, sinful uh, drug sales. Not, not if you are sell drugs to doctors legitimately, but I mean, if you're selling some kind of horrible drug to, to people who's going to slay people. And that, that grieves the Holy Spirit, I'm sure. I, I think sin grieves the Holy Spirit. But what does the Grieve the Holy Spirit passage actually say specifically? Look at Ephesians. It's all about stuff you and I are tempted to do. It's not about running off on your wife or uh, selling drugs, cocaine, or something. It's the kind of stuff real Christians can do. And real Christians do all the time, including in the local church context. Um, And a lot of times we kind of whitewash those things. The Bible doesn't, but we tend to whitewash some of this stuff. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word that's good for the edification of of others according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. What do we know about, what do we know about Stephen? He's full of the Holy Spirit. Now they're looking for people full of the Holy Spirit, but he specifically is said to be full of the Holy Spirit. So among these, this group of really good guys, he's especially uh, directed by the Spirit. People can see that in his life, which means he's not characteristic, characterized by grieving the Holy Spirit. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed, for the day of redemption. What does that mean? Well, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. Be kind to one another. Why is that important in this context? Go back to Acts 6. Look at verse 1. What's the problem? The problem is there's a perceived slight against a certain group in the church and again, I'm quite convinced there was no malice. Whatever happened, I don't think anybody's actually trying to show favoritism. But that's, something's happened that's perceived in that way. And maybe it's a blind spot in the part of some of the people serving the food. Maybe they weren't treating the Hellenistic people fairly. But uh, that's when you tend to get the bitterness and the wrath and the anger and the slander. And the more you think about it, the worse it gets. And that grieves the Holy Spirit. So this is a good guy to be kind of the first guy on the list to help defuse the situation because he's not going to do that. He's going to tend to be uh, able to overcome that kind of thing. So that's good. Uh, But talking about uh, Nicholas, the uh, proselyte from Antioch, the city of Antioch is going to be really important here real quick. After the stoning of Stephen, the church tends to be driven out of Jerusalem because they're all facing imminent martyrdom. And after the dust clears, one of the main centers of early Christianity is the city of Antioch in Syria. There's an Antioch up here in Pisidia, Pisidian Antioch. But the Antioch we're talking about here is the Syrian Antioch, the Antioch of Syria. And so one of these guys, who's one of the first seven proto-deacons, is a proselyte. That's somebody who's born a Gentile who embraces the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the hope of a Jewish Messiah. Uh, this is a, somebody who's came to the to, to Jewish faith, faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, although he was not born in a Jewish family. And he's from Antioch, and Antioch's going to be really important uh, pretty quick in this narrative. Uh, and these were brought before the apostles. The apostles said, hey, nominate seven people who are qualified, These seven are qualified, and so they prayed and laid their hands on them. Laying on of hands is public affirmation, identification, uh, along with a blessing and prayer for uh, enablement and direction in what they're doing. So we had what? We had a problem. What was the problem? Food fight, right? And a perception, a real grievance there, whether it was totally legitimate or not, that people are being treated unfairly in the church. And I hate that when people think we're being unfair. Uh, now that I've been here 27 years, the first year I was here, a long time ago, I was accused of being against almost everything in the church except the softball team. And I was the pitcher for that, so I wasn't going to be against that. But I was told I was against the children's ministry, which I wasn't. I had two, two boys in the children's ministry. I was against the women's ministry. I was against this and that. And then somebody really zapped me. I, wanted to, I want to turn TBF into a Baptist church. And I thought, that's like the worst thing you can say to me. How dare you say that? But uh, no, not really. But um, there's a lot worse things than doing that. But no, I, I, I got TBF, I think. I, I think I get it. And uh, I got all kinds of crazy things. And, and you know, I hate, to, I hate to see people in pain, whether I feel like what they're saying to me this week is legit or not. I hate to see that. I hate to think I'm causing people to have that kind of emotional distress. And sometimes you can, you know, sometimes you can reason with them. Sometimes you can't. But yeah, we had a problem that could t- could have easily caused a, a major church split, right? Uh, what did we do? Had a solution. Let's delegate. Uh, we had a selection implementation, and now we've got a progress report. So Luke's letting you know, hey, it all worked out. But despite all of that, the word of God kept on spreading. And that's what's important. That's why we're in business, not to get the color of the carpet right or making sure everybody's uh, number of rolls they're getting in their daily food ration is exactly the same size and number. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and this is just before persecution forces them out of Jerusalem, so much so that uh, many of the priests, the Jewish priests who've got a job in institutional Judaism, and this is the organization trying to kill uh, the church in its early stages, we're becoming obedient to the faith. What must I do to be saved? Uh, Paul was asked in Acts 16.30, what did Paul say? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and I should be saved. To be obedient to the faith is to believe in Christ. Okay? Uh, the call is to believe. When you believe, you're obedient to the faith. And uh, I've often thought, not, I, Homer won't remember this, but I remember one time he talked to me about the situation in, uh, in Matthew that uh, after the death of Christ and the earthquake and the veil in the temple that uh, represented the separation sin causes between us and God, after that was torn from top to bottom, it said several people who had died in the vicinity recently, just a few days in that last week, came back to life and were walking around Jerusalem. Now if you're a priest that week and you see dead people walking and the veil supernaturally torn that, separ- you know, that, that uh, was the symbol of the separation between God and man, what actual theological event actually tore the veil? The death of Christ. God to testify to the priests so they could not say we didn't know right after the atonement's finished, rips the veil. I can see why the way the apostles are getting the word out with some reflection, you get some priests who say, yeah, yeah, I, I get it. I saw the light. Yeah, this is what happened. So occasionally uh, liberal scholars say, ah, that would never happen. None of the priests would give up their pension to go with these vagabonds. Uh, it happened. It's, it's affirmed here, and I can, I can see why. It makes a lot of sense to me. Alright, that's a progress report, and that's the bottom line. That's the best thing that can happen. Regardless of who the pastor is, or, or uh, uh, you know what the color of the carpet is, uh, we just want the Word of God to continue to spread. That's the bottom line, right? So take this to heart. Uh, effective churches are not one-man, one-woman teams, and the purpose-driven church didn't start with Rick Warren. Now let me tell you something. Rick Warren has done a lot of great things, and I, I really like just about everything Rick Warren said And uh, I've told this story before, but when that book first came out in 97, we'd had a series of best-selling evangelical Christian books that everybody loved that theologically were pretty bad. So I kind of had a prejudice against best-selling evangelical books everybody was raving about, because when I'd read them, I'd say, I can't believe this guy's getting away with this stuff. So I was very much not wanting to read the book, and I didn't read it the first year, and everybody's raving about it. Uh, and when I eventually read it, I was really ready just to tear it apart and not like it. And I read it, and I liked it. I thought, this guy's been my shoes. I should have said this. But uh, here's the thing. Rick Warren wrote his book, which has been republished in every language and every, on every planet. You know, it's, it's all over there, and I think it's a good thing. I'm all for it. Uh, you tell me. Did I tell you the year yet? When, when was that book published? You know, Harold, when was the Purpose Driven Life? 1997. Okay? Now let me, I hate to trump Rick uh, Warren, but we've been doing purpose-driven messages in the pog since 91. So we beat him by six years. And if I believed in conspiracy theories like I used to, I would, I'd be convinced he found my diagram and he's made millions of dollars based on my idea. But it's not my idea. This is not my idea. This is God's idea. It's always been like that. If we'd had more time, we'd gone to Exodus 18, where Moses, early on, has more stuff to do than he can do. And his father-in-law, Jethro. And when Jethro tells you, you've got to think about something, you've got to think about it, he said, you've got to delegate, man. You can't do everything everybody wants you to do every time. It's just not possible. And that was before the, fel- before the cell phone. If he'd had a cell phone, he could have done that. But uh, uh, as an old established biblical tradition. So uh, Rick Warren didn't invent this stuff, a purpose-driven church. The apostles just saying our purpose is to promote the gospel and teaching of the word. We're the primary teachers. We've got to have lots of time for prayerful study and preparation and presentation and that's what we're going to do. But the church as a whole needs to deal with this. Let's delegate it and knock it out. Let's do it the right way uh, with the right people. And that's what they did. And so here's the principle effective churches are not one man one woman teams. And I think, you know, a, a place like TBF, unless we're all more or less pulling on the oars, we don't get anywhere. I, I like to talk about the local church as a long boat. I used to say a long canoe, and somebody said, canoes don't have oars. But I, I guess paddles. But anyway, let's think of a long boat. I like to like think of oars where they're kind of bolted down. And, and think of the TBF as a long boat with a seat and a set of oars for everybody. There's a seat for Harmony, there's a seat for Derek, seat for Linda, seat for Pam, seat for Dale, seat for me, you know. And to me, and and for April, and for Riley and Emma, you know, and Riley's sister, I mean, we've all got seats and oars. And guess what? The church is most effective, Shannon, when everybody's in the seat pulling on the oars. If you're sitting in your seat complaining about everybody else's rowing technique but not pulling on the oars, we're not as effective as we could be. Because you're not pulling on the oars and then your friend's upset at the person uh, that you're whining about their rowing technique and then they get their feelings hurt and they stop pulling on the oars. The only thing worse than that is people that don't get in their seat very often but they stand on the dock and criticize everybody's rowing technique. That's, that's not good. That's not helpful. And so you see how the apostles deal with an issue. They, there's, there's a complaint. There may be some uh, unfairness here. Let's fix it. But we can't physically do it ourselves, we've got to delegate it, and the beat goes on. Uh, as I said, we're going to have a serious turn in the persecution, danger level of being a Christian starting next week. And pray for me this week, because my intent as I stand before you, and I'm an honest man most of the time, especially when I'm being recorded, uh, is to go all the way from 6-8 all the way through 8-3. Can I do that in 45 minutes? I'm going to have to synthesize. Pray for Pastor Brad this week, okay? Let's have a word of prayer. Father God, I'm going to thank you for the promise the Lord Jesus Christ has given us that he is going to build his church, capital C Church, lowercase c church, universal body of Christ, local churches that make that up, And we see that being fulfilled. Jesus built his church through the ups and downs of external persecution and internal controversy uh, in the history of the first century church as recorded in the book of Acts. And I look back at TBF and I've seen you do it, uh, maybe sometimes in spite of the pastor, for 27 years during my tenure. And I thank you that you love the church enough to die for it You love the church more than any of us elders or deacons or Sunday school teachers or nursery volunteers. You love the Capital C Church and this local church more than we do. And it's an important priority in your life. And so help us to see we've got a place to serve and to build. I pray you protect us that we might uh, promote the bond of unity and love and also be active participants, not just... um, consumers of religious activity here as we take part in our beloved church. Uh, Father, we pray for anyone here this morning who's not from the depth of their heart trusted in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior. Uh, We know that uh, the only church membership that really means anything is a born-again believer being baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ all of us who are believers are part of that universal church and we choose in this season of our life to be part of this local church. But if there's anyone here this morning who's not a member of your church uh, even if they've been here longer than the pastor, open their eyes to see the reality of the crucified, risen Savior. Help them to see their need. We've all broken our own standards, much less your standards at our worst. But uh, because of the death of Christ, we can have forgiveness and eternal life. And so we pray that you would open eyes to see and believe and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But for the rest of us, help us to realize what a precious, fragile, wonderful, and yet uh, enduring thing your church is and what a blessing it is to be part of the solution, not just contributing to problems. Help us to realize this is a laboratory where we can learn to love and interact with people that aren't as perfect as we are or aren't exactly like we are, that maybe even use a different translation than we use, things like that. Help us uh, by your grace to express love because we've been forgiven so much. Help us to be giving and forgiving to the glory of Christ, not because it's anything special in us. And we pray in his name, amen.